Um, I'm going to kind of get into my series again. I've been doing a series called If, and taking uh, different passages, different texts of Scripture where Jesus talks about using that if word. And uh, uh, one of the questions we asked to start that was, if God could do something in your life right now at this present time in the season that you're in in your life, what would that be for you that would really change your life? If God would just do this, fill in the blank. And as we've talked, I talked to somebody this week and go, yeah, you've been saying it might be more than one thing. And a lot of you said, yeah, it is more than one thing. But if there was one thing that you believe God could do, but as we go through the Gospels and we've been talking about different encounters that Jesus had with people while he was here on this earth, a lot of times the things that we think God needs to do in our life are not the thing that God really wants to do in our life at the time. Is that not right? Can a lot of us identify with that? You think, this is what I thought I needed, but God started doing something else, and it was like, wow, I thought I needed this, but God's doing this, and this is really what I needed God to do in my life. And it's, it's interesting. God knows us better than we know ourselves. And He loves us, and He wants to take us right where we are, and He wants to put us where He intended us to be, how He created us, what He created us for. And that's a process. I want to share a story. Uh, Jesse Jackson tells a story of a time that he went to the University of Southern Mississippi, and while he was touring the campus with the uh, president uh, of, of that college, um, that university, he said he noticed this really tall guy that was about 6'8 or 6'9, and it really stood out because right next to him was uh, a girl, and I, he assumed they were students, and she was about barely three feet tall. And so that kind of stuck out, you know, the tall and the short. And so he, the president kind of saw him staring at them, kind of wondering, wow, that's a, you know, that's a huge contrast there in sizes. And he says, uh, yeah, that's our star basketball player there, and uh, that's his sister. They lost their parents when they were very young, and uh, he was highly recruited by a lot of schools, but he promised his parents that he would take care of his sister, who was actually uh, a midget. Uh, a little person, I think we call them nowadays. And uh, he says, I will only take a scholarship if my sister gets a scholarship as well. And Southern Mississippi was the only university that would give him and his sister a scholarship. And uh, Jesse Jackson was very impressed with this, and he, he kind of broke away from the president. He went and talked to this guy, and he says, uh, you know, that he, had, he saw him pick her up and give her a kiss, and obviously she went one way to class and he was going to another, and Jesse Jackson went after him and introduced himself and just says, hey, um, I really appreciate and heard about what you did for your sister, and I appreciate you looking after her. I know that's been difficult. And he just kind of shrugged and he said this. He said, those of us who God made 6'8 are supposed to take care of those that he makes 3'3" but that's what he was doing. Now, I know that probably endears y'all a little bit when you hear that story. You may think, man, that's, we've heard stories, we've experienced stories where family members go above and beyond in trying to take care of each other. And when we think about that, it, uh, it's, it's very encouraging. Or, in some cases, it may be, uh, make us a little envious. You know, say, I, I wish my family was more like that. I, I would like to experience that or long to experience that kind of love in my family. Or maybe it motivates you to say, hey, my family's going to be like that. And sometimes when you're, you're first starting out, you can look back in some of the things in your own family and you say, hey, that wasn't the best, but now that I have my own family, I'm going to take those things that I remembered about my family that I'd like to change, and I'm going to be the person that's going to change those things. So I talked about this if, and I would venture to guess in most of our lives when I said, if there was one thing God could change in your life right now and in your family, I bet for most of us it would be something that has to do with relationships. 
It would have to do with maybe restoring a relationship. It would be maybe fixing a relationship. It would be maybe working on a relationship. And God, if you could just fix that and bring us back together and help us understand better, that would be the one thing that I would ask you to fix in my life, to restore that and, and start experiencing authentic love and an authentic relationship the way that, that it should be, God. That's what I want you to fix in my life. So we're going to look at another text today where Jesus has a very intimate meeting uh, with his disciples. Uh, the 12 men that he had chosen, basically about, uh, you know, his ministry was about three years. He started going into ministry at the age of 30, and then he passed away, or died on the cross, obviously, on, on, at the age of 33. And so he picked these three years ago, these guys, he called them all to come follow him. Come and see what I'm doing. I want you to experience this kingdom of God. And so they did. So this is towards the end of the three years, and Jesus is about to be crucified. And they have heard him predict this, but they still don't quite understand it, because he's like, you've got all this power. You're obviously from God. No one has ever taught like this. Nobody has ever done the things that you've done, so they're kind of confused about this, but they're celebrating together um, what they called, as, as Jews, the uh, Passover. This was a historic, very famous um, holiday that they celebrate every year of God leading them out of Egypt many hundreds of years ago when they were in bondage, and God led them out and called them away from that and made them into the great nation that they were promised to be. So as they're uh, 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 celebrating this um, this uh, Passover meal together. This is a, a thing they've done, you know, all their lives, and Jesus is doing this with them. And and somewhere, at some point during the night, Jesus overhears the twelve arguing about who's the greatest among all of them. They've been following him. All of them been following him for the last three years, but they're literally arguing about who's the greatest. And and I don't know. The the gospel message does not tell us exactly what was involved in that argument. You know. I should be first because I did this, or Jesus likes me the best. I, I don't know what they were saying, but you know, we kind of look at that and go, God, that's kind of immature, but I think, you know what, if I was a disciple, I would probably be right in the middle of doing that stuff too. You know, you want to be closer to Jesus. But anyway, Jesus overhears them, and what he does, and we're not going to read this passage, but many of y'all have, have heard about this, is, is Jesus does something that they are really not ready for. Um, at some point during the night, uh, he says, that kind of thinking that I've overheard y'all talking about tonight, about who's the greatest and who should be first and last and all that, that's the world's thinking. That's not God's kingdom thought at all. And y'all should know that. You've been around me for the last three years. I've not only taught you differently than that, but you've also seen how I operate. You know the power I have. You know that I'm from God. And you see how I shy away from trying to make myself the center of attention. But I make God the center of attention. I make others the center of attention. You should know that. You become great by valuing and serving others, putting them first, not yourself. And so Jesus did more than just tell them about how God's kingdom operates. He actually showed them over and over again. On this particular night, he did something that made a lasting impression, not only on them, but for billions and billions who would read this story over the years. This is something very different. Countless billions who have read it. He washed all of their feet. And some of y'all have heard about this, you've, you've, you've read this passage before, you've maybe even been part of a foot washing ceremony, some churches actually do that, maybe you've been to a camp, we had some kids that went to camp this week, it was a great experience for our middle schoolers, they had a great week, um, but sometimes at camp you experience something like where you actually get on your knees with a basin of water and you wash somebody else's feet. Now, 
In those days, it was different. We, we actually have socks and shoes on and protect our feet a little bit. Still not a pleasant thing to think about washing somebody's feet. But in that day, you think about it. They, they walked around in sandals, or if you were a man, I call them mandals, you know. And you'd walk around, and they didn't have paved roads. Uh, they had animals walking on the same roads that all the people walked on. And it's inevitable that you're going to step in some not really desirable things on your feet. And so when you went to someone's house... Someone, usually a servant, would wash your feet as a, as a showing of hospitality, and that was just known. But never did a rabbi, never did somebody with authority ever wash anybody's feet. Nobody had ever heard of that. So for Jesus to take off his outer garment and put this towel around his waist and go to each one of those disciples and get down on his knees and start washing their feet, they're blown away by this. They're like, what? That, that's not what you're supposed to do when you're in that position of authority. But Jesus has already got their attention because he goes, I know what you were arguing about. I heard you. And I'm telling you, and I'm just going to tell you, I'm showing you this is what you're supposed to do. So serving through what needed to be done in, 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 in that moment, Jesus did that. He wanted to show them. And it was more than just a, a, a nice thing. And you think about it. It was actually God in the flesh washing Dirty, smelly feet. God washing our feet. And God tells them this is an example of what they should do for one another. This has to give them a new perspective, especially after they've been arguing about what they've been arguing about. This was more than just a nice thing to do for somebody because, you know, they really had dirty feet, but it was also a way of addressing and walking through a tough time in somebody's life with them. This is more than just washing their feet. He's going, why is he so involved in our lives personally? He wants to know us. He cares about everything we do. This is amazing to them. Serving them through what they you know, needed in, in a dark time of life. Now, you know what? We can see dirty feet in others, can't we? And when I say dirty feet, I'm not necessarily just talking about dirty feet. We see stuff. We all got our stuff, don't we? You know, we got, a, we got a mess, all of us. And we, some of us hide it better than others, but we all got messes. And when we see that, we say, hey, man, you know, Craig's got some dirty feet, you know. He ought to do something about it. And that's what we do. Craig ought to straighten up his mess. And we can talk about how that, that person's family, Craig's family, ought to straighten him up. Straighten his mess up. Why don't they do something about that? Or we talk about a mess in somebody's life or in a group of people's life, and we say, the government ought to do something about that and straighten up the dirty feet in that person's life. That's always somebody else's. And for many times, it's somebody somewhere, we just say these things like, well, somebody somewhere ought to do something about that mess, about that person's dirty feet. And we shake our head. But you know, many times, for most of us, the last scenario would be that God has called me to straighten up that mess and clean that person's feet. We're quick to point it out, but are we quick to actually do something about us? Us washing the dirty feet of someone else, especially when we know the goods on them. Do you know what I mean about knowing the goods on them? Yeah, y'all are shaking your head. You understand what that means, but, but I know them. I know them, and I'm going to wash your feet anyway. And Jesus knows the goods on all of these. But watching Jesus wash everyone's feet that night had to be uh, an, an unbelievably humbling feeling. Judas, who Jesus knew, would just in a few short minutes, or I don't know exactly how long it was, but on that very night, he's going to leave this setting, and he's going to go betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. He's going to turn him in to the authorities. And Jesus is on his knees, washing his feet. He doesn't skip him. As he's washing everybody's feet, he doesn't skip him. Can you imagine how that felt 
to Judas to have his feet washed by Jesus knowing what he's getting ready to do. And you think about Peter, who later that night, or at least within the next 12 to 24 hours, would deny he even knew Jesus three times. Can you imagine how that felt? Knowing Jesus knows that knowledge previous to when it's going to happen. And he's on his knees washing his feet. He's got the goods on all of them. And he knows that every single one of them, y'all, is going to run off and leave Jesus when he gets arrested. And he's still on his knees. The rest of them don't know they're going to run because they don't know exactly what's going to happen. But Judas knows what he's getting ready to do. Peter says, I would never do that, Jesus. And Jesus says, yeah, you are. And he still washes his feet. And here's the thing, y'all. Jesus washes our feet, and he's got the goods on us, doesn't he? You may be hiding it from your, your friend, your wife, your, your mom and your dad, your boss. You can hide all that junk, but Jesus knows, and he still not only wants to wash your feet, cleanse you, but he still wants relationship with you. And that's what he did. He never gave up on those guys. Many of y'all have heard the name Oswald Chambers. Many of y'all probably have that... Um, uh, there's a devotional call, I think, is His Utmost for My Highest. Anybody heard of that before? Probably a lot of y'all have read that over the years, got it as a gift. He said this, he says, Our Lord did not say to His disciples, I have had a most successful time on the earth. I have addressed thousands of people and have been the means of their salvation. Now you, because you're my followers, go and do the same thing. He said, If then your Lord and Master have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. We try to get out of it by washing the feet of those who are uh, not on our own set. We will wash the heathen's feet, the, the feet in the slums, but fancy washing my brother's feet, my wife's feet, my husband's feet, the feet of the minister at my church. Our Lord said, one another's feet. Now you see what he's getting at there. And I heard a comment the other day, from a preacher's wife who said, the, my husband is nicer to the people at church than he is to me. This is what we're talking about, isn't it? This is what we're talking about. Sometimes we can send people to Guatemala. We sent 25 people to Guatemala, and they built a house for two complete stranger families they'd never met in their life. And that's great. That's what we should be called to do. But Jesus is talking about here, and Oswald Chambers is getting at what Jesus is talking about here, is sometimes we can do the nicest things for complete strangers, can't we? But man, if the person across my street's house is in a mess, we're going, man, let's call the HOA on them. Let's call the county and tell them to cut their grass. Tell them to fix that house. That looks terrible. What in the world did they paint it that color for? Does it dawn on us that maybe they need some foot washing? Or maybe it's our own family. And we can do that sometimes. And it doesn't necessarily have to be a literal house, does it? It doesn't have to be literal feet, but there's things that we can show tangibly somebody that we really love them. And sometimes we miss that. And I think that's what Jesus is saying. You've seen all these things that I've been doing for all these people, all these crowds, but I'm telling you, in this intimate setting, you need to love each other. That's what the world needs to see. So let's look at that text from John chapter 13. And John, out of all the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, he spends more time on this, this last together uh, meeting of the disciples than anybody else. It's several chapters. Y'all can read it. It goes on, I think, 13 through 17. And it just, just talks a lot about John remembers all this, and the Holy Spirit inspired him to write about that. So let's read that. It's up on the screen if you've got your Bibles or your personal devices, however. Uh, so when he was gone, this is when he has told Judas, go ahead, I know what you're getting ready to do, go ahead and do it. And he leaves 
where they're celebrating. He says, when he was gone, Judas, Jesus said, now the Son of Man is glorified and God is glorified in him. And if God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself and will glorify him at once. He's talking about what's getting ready to happen and they just don't really quite get this yet. My children, I will be with you uh, only a little longer. You will look for me and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I am going, you cannot come. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you have love, if you love one another, if. That's how people are going to know that you're my disciples. Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus replied, where I'm going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you really lay down your life for me? Very truly, I tell you, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times, Peter. And we're going to stop right there. Wow. It's pretty powerful, isn't it? Jesus was letting them know of the reality of what was about to happen. God's going to be glorified in this. You're not going to think that. You're going to be, you've seen all these things I've been doing, and you know it's dangerous. You know how they want to kill me, all the religious leaders, but it's getting ready to happen. But this is why I came. God's going to be glorified through this. Ultimately, the whole world is going to be restored and forgiven through my death and my resurrection, but they just don't quite get it. And I'm never going to be hard on those disciples. I'm like, why didn't they get it? Because we wouldn't have gotten it either, y'all. We would have been like Peter. We're trying to find out a different way. But when he came to earth, and in this revelation, he's given this command. He says, this is a command. Love one another. By this, all people will know you're my disciples if you love one another. In the last part of that, when Peter makes these bold claims about, I want to go with you. I'm ready to go with you. He goes, no, you can't go now. You will later. And Peter did. He died a martyr's death. And he felt like, you know, as we read through history, that Peter says, I'm not even uh, worthy to be crucified like uh, my Lord and Savior Jesus, and we understand that he was actually crucified upside down when he was crucified and martyred. But he doesn't quite get that now. He just thinks he is. So in that last part of the text, when Peter makes these bold claims, why does Jesus need to address that? Why didn't he just smile and go, yeah, I mean, in your mind you're going, yeah, right, whatever. You're not going to really, you don't really. But he says it out loud. I'm like, what? what's the What's the purpose of confronting him with that in front of everybody? Why embarrass him in front of the rest of the disciples and tell them that this is going to happen? But Jesus is showing love by confronting arrogance and these empty claims. Peter wants to be a standout hero. He's still trying to say, I'm the one that's in, I'm, I'm the top guy here. He's still trying to get in that position, and Jesus sees that. And he's showing him in love by confronting this arrogance, showing these empty claims. It is not love, y'all, necessary to let things go all the time, is it? You go, what do you mean by that? Aren't we supposed to try to keep the peace and just let things go? Isn't that a better way to do it? But he has already shown, I know you very well and I still want to celebrate the Passover meal with you. I love you very much and I, I, I know where you've walked and I have washed your feet. I know where you're about to walk, Peter. Judas, all the rest of you, you're going to run and abandon me, and I still love you, and I still want relationship with you. But a lot of times, y'all, this is what we do, and this is, what, this is what's interesting to me about how John remembers this, that he confronts Peter, is God loves us too much to let us stay where we are. Hear that again. 
God loves us too much to let us stay where we are. Yeah, he could just let it go, but he's not. The cruel, I heard this quote a few years ago and it stuck with me. The cruelest thing we can do in Christian community is to allow a brother and sister to go through blank by themselves. What would you fill in that blank? Oh, well, you don't want them to go through loss or grief by themselves. That's not what the quote was. The cruelest thing we can do in Christian community is to allow a brother or sister to go through sin by themselves. Oh, now, wait a minute. I, I don't want to get into that. That's getting in people's business. I don't want to confront somebody else. Sin, loss, and grief. I'll be glad to comfort somebody in their loss. I'll be glad to comfort somebody in their grief. But in their sin, they just got to deal with that. That's between them and God. We want to back off of that. But Jesus is not. We don't want to address it. So we let them suffer alone and we pretend that we didn't see it coming or we don't see it or we don't know about it. It's like the dirty feet. Man, he needs to wash his feet. God stinks in here. His feet stink. I'm not going to wash it. Somebody needs to do something about it, but I'm not going to do it. Love involves loving in the best of times and in the worst of times. Is that not true? When you made those vows, were those, wasn't that a part of the vows? You know, you know, we think about it. In sickness and in health. Poor and rich and poor. All those things. We're supposed to love in the best of times and the worst of times. And we understand that. We need to address and try to stop the rule of Satan. And I mentioned this last week. Jesus told us, you know what Satan tries to do in our lives? Y'all remember this from last week? He wants to kill, steal, and destroy, doesn't he? Our lives, our joy, our encouragement. He wants to kill, steal, and destroy all of that. And then there's people that we see going through that, and we just kind of say, oh, I don't want to get involved with that. We need to let them know and remind them that Jesus has overcome that and embrace that, believe that, allow Christ to encourage you. C.S. Lewis, in his writing, The Four Loves, said this. He said, to love at all is to be vulnerable. How true is that? And a lot of us have been hurt because we've loved. And because we've loved and been hurt, then we want to back off and say, I'm not going to love anymore. Nobody's going to hurt me again, so I'm not going to love. But this is what he says. Love anything and your heart will be wrung out and possibly broken. If you want to be sure of keeping your heart intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully around the hobbies and the little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Look up, lock it up safely in the casket of your selfishness. And in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless. It will not change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, unredeemable. The only place outside of heaven where you can be perfectly safe from the dangers of love is hell. Yikes. But there's some of us here today, you know what, we've been hurt. And because we've been hurt, we're not letting let anybody get close again, ever. Not going to let that happen. And C.S. Lewis is saying, you got to be vulnerable if you're going to love. And Jesus knew what vulnerability was all about. He's getting ready to hang in front of the whole world, basically almost half naked on a cross as a criminal when he didn't do anything wrong. He was willing to be vulnerable, to get on his knees and wash the dirty feet of people that he had no business washing. And we've got to understand that. Loving one another is a risky and messy, isn't it? It's always going to be risky and messy. But Jesus says it is how we show the world that we're his disciples, by loving each other. Not only in the good times, like, hey, when something great happens, we're going to be around. But when something bad happens, I'm avoiding you. I don't know if any of y'all have heard of Spartacus, right? There was an old movie back in the day called Spartacus. And then there was a TV series, I think, on Netflix or something a few years ago called Spartacus. And... 
was basically about the great Roman slave rebellion in about 70 or so years before Jesus came into the world. And these uh, uh, slaves finally uh, were led by somebody named Spartacus, who was this highly trained gladiator who had escaped and, and got his freedom, and he was now helping lead other slaves to escape uh, and, and, and be free again. And as the news of the rebellion grew, Rome was not happy about this. That, well, who is this guy that's leading this rebellion and, and letting slaves be set free? We don't need that. Something needs to be done. And as news of his rebellion grew, thousands of slaves joined this cause and followed him, and he won a lot of victories, and there was also some defeats. But near the end of the movie, or even in the series, uh, the massive Roman army under the command of Senator Crassus um, captures the rebels, and they finally put this rebellion down. And they're all sitting on the ground, and he comes riding up. And he has never seen or actually met Spartacus face to face. And he looks as he's walking and sees all these prisoners finally subdued. They're sitting on the ground. They know they've been defeated. There's nowhere else to go. And in full Roman uniform, he gallops up in his horse. And he looks at all of the slaves sitting there. And he shouts out to them that if they want to escape crucifixion, you need to tell me who this Spartacus is. I want to know. He's got to be among all this group. There's about five or 6,000 of them. He wants to know who it is and if you want to escape. And true to his word, they were all executed by crucifixion. But at this particular time, Spartacus is sitting there and he studies the ground for a minute and he gets up and he's about to say, I'm Spartacus. But the guy next to him jumps up and says, I'm Spartacus. Halfway down the line, somebody else jumps up and says, I'm Spartacus. And up and down the line, all the way down the line, the whole army says, I'm Spartacus, I'm Spartacus, I'm Spartacus. They bonded in that moment. Those slaves knew what it meant to be the church. To bond with one another after all the good times and the bad times. And this was the end for most of them. All of them probably. But they were willing to say, we know what we've shared together. And in this bad time, I'm not going to give up on you. And I think that's an example of what Jesus is talking about. It's important for us to show Love to strangers. Absolutely, that's important. And those we meet for only a brief period. But I don't know about y'all, but that's, that's sometimes easier for me. How about y'all? It's easier to do. There's not a real relationship there. It's harder for us to love those that we're in a mess with. We're entangled with every day at our work and our families and our jobs and all that stuff. And that's what Jesus is talking about here. He's making it clear. The whole world will know that you're my disciples when you really love one another in the bad times and in the good times. So the question for you this morning is, who do you need to love this morning? Who does the world need to see you love? You ever been in a, in a, in a position where you're seeing a family somewhere out uh, I, don't, I mean, it might be Six Flags, it might be on vacation, and you see an awkward moment where they're treating each other really bad. You ever seen something? Man, I would never let my kid talk to me like that. I would have never let whatever. And you just kind of think, it's awkward, isn't it? And all of us have some of that where we know there's some relationships we need to straighten out, and, 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 and we need to show the world that we're truly Jesus' disciples when we can really love in the midst of a mess, in the midst of difficult situations. And y'all, I want to be the kind of church that we love each other. When somebody has a fall, when somebody sins, when somebody's in a tough situation in their life, we want to help them out, not avoid them. Like, oh, hey, good job, you got married, that's awesome. Oh, that guy's going through a divorce. Man, that's when somebody needs you to call them and say, man, I'm sorry. How can I help you? I'm sorry, what can I do for you? 
That's the tough thing to do, but that shows the world that we're really His disciples. Are we willing to do that as a church? Are we willing to do that as individuals? And that's important, to love one another. And what we're about to do next in worship is something that came from this same encounter that same night. Jesus said, I'm getting ready to go to the cross, and we've been celebrating the Passover, and we take this unleavened bread, and there was a lot of other things involved with that Passover meal. I don't have time to go through all that, but it was very symbolic because I'm going to do something real simple. A piece of bread represents my body that I'm going to die on the cross for you tomorrow, and it's going to forever forgive you for all of your sins and all of humanity's. And this, this, they were probably drinking wine. He said, this wine we're getting ready to drink, I want you to drink it. This is a new covenant in my blood. I'm going to shed blood tomorrow that's going to give you forgiveness and eternal life. And I want you to never forget this. And when you start to meet after I've left, I want you to continue to do this to remember what I've done for you. And so, y'all, we're getting ready to do that as a, as, as a congregation. If you're a guest here today, we do this every Sunday. Yeah, y'all come on up, band. We're going to get ready to go into a time of communion. And Jesus said, don't ever forget what I've done for you. And so we do this every week. And if you're a guest with us today and this is not familiar to you or you say, well, I'm not a member, can I do it? You don't have to be a member. If you're a believer in Christ and you want to participate, we invite you to participate with us today as we remember Jesus and how He didn't just talk about love, that He showed that in His, his ultimate action on the cross and through His resurrection. But as we get ready to go, we're going to sing a song to prepare our hearts for that time of, uh, of communion. But maybe today something that I, I, I've, I've said, something I've read, something in a song this morning has, has uh, touched your heart. And you might be ready to say, hey, you know, I want to be a, a disciple of Jesus. I want to be a follower of Jesus. And if you have that decision to make, we offer that invitation every week. But if you say, I'm not quite there, I'll be glad to talk to you after the service. During the week, we can talk with our, myself or staff or somebody. But don't let that just be a fleeting moment. God may be speaking to you specifically today. If you're looking for a church home, we offer. Say, we want to be a place where we truly are disciples, that we love one another in good times and bad. And if you're looking for a church home like that, we are not perfect. I can tell you that. We're going to disappoint you at some point. But we are committed to God's Word and being the disciples that He's called us to be. So we're going to stand right now and we're going to sing. If you have a decision, I'll be right here waiting. If not, let's just worship God and prepare our hearts for communion together right now.